the suffering or the disease or the way that I've been taught to deal with pain and suffering or events that are of dukkha is learnt either from my family or my culture or systems of oppression, you know, enable or promote or collude. Um, so then that gives me much more sense that if I, um, it's something that was taught to me, then I can unlearn it or relearn it. And that's to me then naturally leads into that, oh, so if this is something that was learned, then I have agency. Where do I have agency to unlearn and relearn? Reverend Lian Shut was born into a Buddhist family in Vietnam and began her meditation practice in the insight tradition. In 1998, she helped create Buddhists of Color one of the early meditation groups committed to supporting practitioners of color in the San Francisco Bay Area. Lian began her formal monastic training in 2002 at Tassajara Zen Monastery and continued her monastic training in Japan and Vietnam. While she's placed her trust and faith in Soto Zen, Lian continues to enjoy the deep silence of insight practices and has completed retreats in the U.S. and in Thailand. She received Dharma transmission from Zenke Blanche Hartman in 2013. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of this podcast are invited to try a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where her students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. Reverend Lian, it's great to talk to you. And I I really actually wanted to start with the name of your sangha because it's, you know, it's quite different than a lot of these other places that are either like the San Francisco Zen Center or the Cambridge Zen Center or something like Empty Moon or <laughs> and you in so many ways like uh named it exactly uh, what it is it's called access to zen access to zen and i really like that name partly because i think people come to zen centers and it's a little bit intimidating and people aren't really sure what it is that it, what zen is i mean shoot i don't know maybe i don't even know what zen is <laughs> like but it can feel really opaque and I just loved this name because of sort of the idea of, you know, 
you know, this sangha really is about making it accessible. But I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about where that name came from, like what's what actually is behind it when you're saying access to Zen? Yeah. So thank you, Ian, for the invitation to be here. Well, I really appreciate your um, podcast because it is very much about teaching and about the interaction of teachers and students. And so when I was asked to formulate a group, um, right away to me it was access to Zen because in my experience and in my um, interaction with many people, I would say a lot of people because of the um, formality of Soto Zen and the structure of temples that are very much um, people don't want all the trapping that for one, just the religiousness of it. Um, and then and then just more specifically for practitioners of color uh, or queers or uh, people who have been traditionally marginalized immigrants. Um, uh, so to my experience, for, for instance, um, a, a really good story would be when I went first went to Tassajara. So first I did insight in a tradition in which, you know, from the Bay Area that, you know, you could bow if you want when you enter the meditation hall and you leave, but there's nothing, pretty much nothing else. You, you know, you see the teachers do whatever bows, if, but nobody talked about it and there was no sense of having to do it. And then the first one you, in my experience, when you enter a Zen center, it's all there and you kind of can't avoid it. Um, and so, um, when I first went to Tassajara, and I really went um, because I was looking for a way to do three months of practice without having to pay because I didn't have the money. And I'd just come back from my first visit home to Vietnam after 28 years. And I was kind of like floored about, wow, what is my life, right? Who am I? What is my life? And so um, at the time, if you work the whole summer, because it's a guest season of six, uh, five and a half months, then you get two, three months practice periods so you know I had Zazen instruction and I was a summer student and so they had the first meeting of summer students and I remember somebody raising the hand and so Zazen instruction for those who don't know is literally posture instruction uh, those days I didn't even say anything about the altar except for don't stand in front of the altar when you enter yes you're bound and it looks like the altar the way it was set up but you know so so someone raised their hand and it was a, also a person of color very few but um we're like oh we can get more instruction of service on service and chanting and bowing you know which is a lot of forms and at the time the the tanto the head of practice said um no and i was just it you know, and then later we were like, well, how come? And, you know, the, uh, what we heard was that um, not knowing is part of our practice. And so when you have too much knowing, then, you know, you conceptualize, blah, 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 right? Which now that I, you know, I'm very steeped in Zen, I get it. And yet, um, you know, the, that other person, who was person in color, and I were talking, and we were like, for people of color, not knowing has huge impact having been an immigrant myself and having been a social worker working with immigrants you know when you don't know you don't get food stamps you don't get services or people yell at you and so there's much more 
impact of not knowing that is hugely impacts your life and what, what the quality of your life and what kind of services you receive and how you negotiate through the world. And so it's very much about how, why I love Zen. I've come to really love and appreciate the, the, the spirit of Zen. It says that on the website, right? The spirit of Zen. Um, and yet I want to have a little bit more. This is why also my teaching is mixed with Theravadan practice is there's a little more instruction so that um, people have some sense of ease instead of just, well, again, I appreciate the spirit of how we're already perfect the way we are. And I would say to, you know, paraphrase Suzuki Roshi, uh, giving a little help, you know, not only do I, I do need help. So please help me out by giving me just a little bit more instruction about how to do things and how to negotiate the space to kind of, um, Another way that I thought about it after I moved out um, of, of Zen Center was when I taught at a more community-based place in Oakland was, um, you know, how you say that the finger pointing at the moon, right? It really, for people who know nothing about Buddhism and yet want the meditative healing the healing that comes from meditation practice, which I, I learned that you basically have to do dots as you're pointing towards the moon because people, again, just need more steps, right? It, it's a beautiful story to say, oh, you know, pointing at the moon is, it's, it's a, what I'm doing is not enlightenment and, you know, you already are enlightened and I'm just showing you the way. But unless you say all that, you, you know, just saying, even just doing the movement is not enough. And so from that place of, of engagement, but not put things into word, again, a great concept. And I do say that, um, that, you know, in Zen, it's very much that we don't want to conceptualize and, and doing is the, the spirit of Zen. Again, having some support to know what you're doing um, helps a lot. For instance, access to Zen, we... Don't give instruction about bowing to your cushion away um, until people asked about it. And as uh, as time has gone on and people have taken the precepts with me, um, now we chant after uh, we meditate because people don't go to the temple and don't want to. Some of the people, um, they want to do the rope chant because that's the only opportunity of the day. So that's, then we added that. Um, and like, for instance, with, with Zoom, you know, these days, a lot of people I know don't want people to unmute because it's discordant, but I totally like, I don't mind that because my whole thing is about how are we doing this together? Chanting. Oh my gosh. You know? I know, you, and it's totally you love the chaos. <laughs> yeah, it's totally chaotic, but I, I'm, and trust me, it ha- you know, the first phrase, I'm like, why do I do this part of me? Because I'm like, ah, and part of me is just smiling because it really is true. I want them to just engage and it's not about doing it right or, and it's about engaging, putting Uh, wholeheartedly into it. And how can we make that accessible? You know, one of the things that you just sort of made me or sort of triggered as a thought with me is, you know, this don't know mind, obviously it's the, the thing that we're going for in a lot of ways right? It's this, it's the practice. And I also feel like sometimes that can be used as an excuse for 
maintaining an insider culture, which I've seen a lot of. And, you know, people sort of figured it out about how to be on the inside of the culture, you know, mm-hmm. probably because they had someone show them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and then we sort of perpetuate this insiderness that you know for me i just feel like i i believe in buddhism i believe i believe that the teaching it provides an opportunity for liberation and we should be doing everything we can <laughs> to help you know develop this opportunity for liberation well i think i think part of that is we, what i've had experienced given my practice overseas also is that in my experience of north american convert buddhism is that um there's a certain assumption that our way is the way of buddhism now mm. uh, whereas um buddhism was vast and wide, and um, there are many expressions of it. And in fact, as I have um, talked about, you know, the in the in the West, and I certainly came to it at this way was to meditation as the entry into practice. And for the most part, most of the Buddhist world is the precepts is the entry, and the precepts is where we start, how we live our life, how we interact with each other. Um, I, I, I could tell a funny story about it, should I? Yeah, that, yeah. funny stories are great. <laughs> so um, I, I was still doing Insight when I mm-hmm. went back to Vietnam the first time. And I belonged to a, a Vietnamese women's group. And so I rented a room in a house um, of a friend from that group. Right, mm-hmm. And so... I paid some, but there was exchange. I was supposed to help their kid, you know, develop the English better. And so, um, and part of it, I would have lunch with them, which is the main, main meal. Right. And I taught English in the, in the afternoon. So, well, one in Vietnam, privacy is a different thing. Like I close my door all the time from my room. Right. And so Fung would like yell from downstairs, right, that it's lunch. And then if I don't answer soon enough, um, she would just come and open the door, right? So one time, you know, I was meditating. And so she comes bursting in the door, and then she's like, what are you doing? So this is when I was doing inside. I wasn't ordained yet, right? So so I'm, I'm like, I'm meditating. And she's like, wow, that's so Californian. <laughs> she's like only monks, only monks and nuns meditate you know so why are you meditating <laughs> so oh you know and yet they they went to temple they had a you know a not 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 confucius buddhist altar um so but that's like an example of how we have a very different idea about what being a buddhist means um and and as as a practice in some ways the other mm-hmm. piece of course is for uh, and that i put out is that uh buddhism is a religion in most of the buddhist world you know and and on one level i of course understand how 
in the West, you know, many people are like, I, I'm a Buddhist, but I'm not religious. And, and I, I can understand that. And I always say we don't card, you know, but I do tell my people, the people who, who actually take the precepts with me that technically you're a Buddhist now, but we don't card. So it's okay. You know? So. Yeah. I mean, I think there is something I also, I agree with you. Like I know people who consider it just a philosophy or a way of being, um, sort of orienting in the world. And yet for me, there is this profoundly spiritual mm-hmm. movement within it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the reason I practice. Mm-hmm. I, I believe in the spiritual dimension of it. More than just the, the thinking of it or the, you know, some sort of ethic, like ethical parameters, which I think are also good. I just, um, I don't know. I, I don't know what, what, where I'm going with that, but. <laughs> well, I would say that, you know, to be perfectly honest, um, I, even when I asked to ordain, I didn't really think of myself as a religious person. I mean, I was mm. living at Tassajara, <laughs> you know, it's a monastery, but I, I responded to the, the spiritualness of it. Like I myself, like, you know, when I was adopted and my mother was a adopted mother was Presbyterian, you know, I got baptized went to church all the time until I refused at 16. Um, and, you know, and so I myself never thought I was religious. And on some level, I will say it's my Vietnamese friends and my experience overseas practicing that helped me to understand the religiousness bit. Mm-hmm. For instance, when I um, w- went overseas, right? Well, one, so for one Zen center, we all call ourselves priests because that's the feminist I, I was told that, you know, in the, in the 70s, they were like, we're feminists, and so we're all priests. And um, and we don't even, well, one sign in the Atasara would say monks, but we would call ourselves monks, right, if if we had to call one. But when I went to Asia, of course, I was a nun, one thing. Mm-hmm. And that was very much that um, if you're a nun um, or, or ordained, your job is to promote the Dharma. Because here it is, this is a, a, a healing practice, something that can relieve the suffering of the world. So you should be telling people about it. And in fact, it's, it's talked about when I practiced at uh, Chuklam that, um, you know, that uh, I was there in the time in which people, the, the nuns got to go home for two weeks and I, um, the master came and gave a talk to the nuns and, uh, he, one story he said was that, um, so it's time for you to go home and it's for two weeks they got, and then he's like, it's okay. The first week that you get your mother to make all your favorite foods and you just eat all that stuff and that's good. But really the second week you should be talking to them about Buddhism you know, because this this will help them suffer less in their life. And so you you should. You should be sharing the Dharma. That's what it comes down. You know, they don't say it as proselytized. And, and so it's very much about, I have the good news, you could say. Why wouldn't I want to share it, right? And, and why wouldn't we? And then, you know, the other thing I've witnessed both in Vietnam and in Thailand in particular, right? When I was in Thailand, when I would tell people why I was there to meditate, right? They were like, 
oh, yeah, boon, boon is the word for merit. In Thai, right? They say, oh, your boon is so good. Your karma boon is so good that you have the opportunity to practice. And people would spend, you know, I, I ended up practicing with um, uh, Arahat by accident. That was very famous. And people would travel for hours in the morning on the bus to bring him his meal and then go to work and then come back because we meditate for three hours in the evening, right? From six to nine. And, oh, excuse me, no, three to six and then eight to 11. And they would just spend hours, like this is the kind of, and that's the other thing I learned, devotion is, was very much a heart thing as opposed to my sense of devotion is like, you know, holding people up too high, kind of like American mm-hmm. Idol kind of thing. Mm-hmm. When it's really very much like people who are fortunate, the boon has ripened so much, the karma has ripened so much that they can practice. And this is something one should support. And people spend their life figuring out how to, to be able to have time. People often would retire by going to the, the nunnery and the monastery. You know, they live their whole life to that. So it's very much uh, lauded as a, as a role of being, being fortunate enough to ordain and be, to live a life promoting and, and exemplifying the Dharma. And that's partly why, like, I go by reverend, you know, mm. in the San Francisco Zen Center system. Traditionally, we don't use our titles as, as with our names, and yet I do, to honor um, that. And my Vietnamese friends, too, when I came back, you know, they're like, oh, you need to have a sitting group. And I'm like, oh, no, I haven't been here so yet. I can't. But they're like, you're ordained. You went to the monastery. You have experience. This is what people need, you know? And in, in fact, um, in, actually, in I was Shuso in 2011, but in 2008, because of many um, friends of color and people of color wanted me to have a sitting group, Blanche allowed me to have a study group. You know? And it was in a friend's house. So, and it was very clear I wasn't teaching the Dharma. We have you know, meditate together, discuss something. And it sort of just, everything you just said brings me back, I guess, to the name of your sangha. Again, it's like, it, you're right. It is a, it's a great luxury that both you and I have mm-hmm. this opportunity really to practice and also to share the message mm-hmm. of, that's there. Like, we can't do it for anybody. Mm. You, you as a teacher, me as this podcaster, but like, mm-hmm. but I love the idea of access to Zen as really almost trying to find a way to invite more people into the process. And I was, you know, on your website, you, you've rewritten a number of these sort of, um, you know, you've rewritten the Four Noble Truths and you've, it, did you rewrite the precepts as well, or did you? How does that? Or uh, was there a new I, way? I, well, I put them. I, I in everything you know for me. People, I, I didn't. I rewrite them all the time because for mm-hmm. me, part of the study is how do we make them real. Mm-hmm. I hope. I hope that, and to me, that's not unzen, right? That like, how do we no. know it for ourselves? So right. in our precept study, um, people. Are, in fact, we start. 
by you writing your own and mm-hmm. the end that you write your own. Um, so that, that shows you the progression of how you, how you've internalized it and digested and composed it. Um, then what does it mean to you instead of just things to memorize? I'm really not into, it's not a collecting practice. It's a actualizing practice. That's so fascinating. Like I have a, a friend, a teacher friend who, um, he wrote a book a couple of years ago and he rewrote the heart sutra mm. from his, for, from, for himself. And for him, he was doing it in the, in the model of, I guess, the sort of Christian desert mothers and fathers, they, um, they would write their own gospel mm. and, and he was sort of picking up that tradition and, but doing it with the heart sutra. Um, which I just found such a, like a truly precious idea of sort of really situating within the Dharma of this thing. And I love, I love the idea of writing the precepts. Yeah. You, you know, um, so, so again, with, and the, the, the precepts study, I started it out as very the traditional way I was taught, you mm-hmm. know, and which is, um, you study with a teacher. And then when they decide you're ready, then you go to have chukai, you have a ceremony, and you get, the, you know, the rakasu. Um, um, and so when I first was able to give the precepts, my first group was that, right? They stayed with me for six months, and then we did a ceremony. And the next year was the same thing, and I was giving the talk on the, the day of the um, Chukai ceremony in the morning in the public day. And so there's always a Q&A after. And someone who was taking the meditation course with me um, was at the Q&A and then said, should I study the precept? And I was like, everybody should. And in fact, <laughs> in fact, um, actually, uh, you know, I have another story about that that I learned actually at, um, when I did a two-month retreat at a Insight. Yeah inside place and at the end you know they had ways for us to start talking because you know to come out of silence and there was mm-hmm. a young um north american man who had studied in the achancha tradition in thailand oh sure mm-hmm. yeah and he told this great story so a thai monk had come up to him and said i noticed that you westerners have a really hard time with meditation and the the caucasian guy said oh yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's certainly my experience. So the Thai monk says, I know why. And the, and do you want to know? And he's like, well, yeah, yeah, sure. I want to know. <laughs> yeah, so, me too. <laughs> yeah. So well, it's like this. I so remember the Thai force tradition. So he yeah. says, so if you want to make a chair, right? So you would go into the force and you would look at the trees and you would say, oh, which kind of tree would make a good chair? So you want a hardwood, say. So then you would go up to the tree, then you would cut it down, then you would plane for the planks, then you would cut into the pieces that make a chair, right? The seat, the legs, blah, blah, blah. Then you would find a way to put, you know, put them together. And then the last step. The last step in making a chair is you would take sandpaper and you would then sandpaper it so that it smooths out, right? So this is how you would make a chair. So what I notice is for Westerners, when they come to practice, 
what happens is they take a piece of sandpaper and they go up to a tree and they start sanding it to make a chair. Meditation is like the sandpaper. It's the last step. And so when you guys start with meditation, you're making the job hard for yourself. And the precepts is the other parts, the cutting it down, the planing it. And this is why it's so hard for you, <laughs> right? And totally makes sense. <laughs> so to wow. me, I really teach the precepts as, you know, the sense of like when you are living a life that is in accordance with your values of not, and then, you know, broadly in Buddhism as a, you know, non-harming, then you're already much more subtle when you go to do the meditative practice. And so then you have less agitation. So it makes sense that the precepts is first. So anyway, so in that, I also then started, um, and it also was right after a very important uh, <laughs> election. Um, so in 2017, you know, oh, I had that like, election. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had like, I had five people, then I had four people. That year, 25 people signed up. And then we ended up with 17, and seven went to Jukai, but I had whatever the difference is of people who just, I have a, a, a track called Engage Studies where people who don't want to, you know officially become a Buddhist. And the only difference is, you know, we they all do the same thing. It's an eight-month studies program. Ask for three one-day retreat from everyone. Uh, commitment to well, our Monday night group access to Zen two from the Chukai. Uh, sorry, three from the Chukai per month and two from the engaged studies. And then everyone has to do three one day in that eight-month period. And then the Jukai people have to do a three or more si more day silent retreat, whereas the engaged people don't. And that's the only difference. Well, and that's, you know, one thing I noticed when I was going through your material and on your website is you have like a lot of sort of courses in a way that, you know, other places do study groups and stuff like that. But, um, it really stood out to me um, as there's this, uh, you know, a training, a very specific training style, which I don't, was just new new to me. And also, it's, I think just personally, I gravitate in that direction. I'm always like, oh, let me take a course. Um, but I, I liked it. And it, but it was also, I don't know if that was part of the, methodology when you were thinking out about how to do access to Zen um, or if it just sort of naturally arose that way or? Yeah, naturally arose. Really, access to Zen all started was, again, a, whole, a group of people um, took two meditation courses with me, um, the way Zen Center was working out in terms of time, um, 11 weeks. And then at the end, they were like, well, how can we study some more? And I was like, here's all the things you can do at Zen Center. And they were like, no, with you. And so they <laughs> wanted me to start a, a meditation group. All my meditation groups um, have been as a response to people asking. And then as time went along, you know, people are like, 
what is that bib thing you wear? What does that mean? <laughs> you know? And so then, and, and because, you know, this is the other thing I really learned um, is that we make, I made so many assumptions when I was at the monastery um, that, you know, and this is also part of practice where we come and we go, oh, these are rules. I don't want to do this. And so much of living in community, you're like, I don't want. I don't, or maybe it says I'm aversive type too, but it's like, I don't want, you know, you try to resist the schedule, you try to resist this and that. And then when you get out of it, when I moved out, I was like, uh, where's the Han? Where's, you know, the structure helps mm-hmm. a lot to support practice. And so as time went on, basically that's, it started with the, the, the Tukai, um, you know, the precept study, but basically people wanted some kind of container to mm-hmm. help practice. And then as things went as things went along, I really realized that people, one, don't just need a meditation group. So one, you know, most of us have sitting groups, a meditation group that are um, like ongoing. And that's hard for people. Also, the other thing is when there's a finite sense, people can yep. start engaging more. Um, and then, you know, like in terms of the awake program or other programs I have, basically they include having a sangha as a, a place for you to go on Monday nights, that's ours, um, and then a certain course of study, and then practice discussion, because that's the other thing. When I was practicing the inside tradition, I knew nothing about, you know, go and retreat, and then you get to talk to a teacher, but there was no sense of interaction with a teacher. And so I think that's, for me, part of the Zen thing that in terms of, in uh, North American convert practice in the inside, it's kind of missing as like an, as a gone going, not, not as a retreat thing. And so, um, and people really um, don't know about that and, and appreciate it so much when they did know. And, and this, it was the same for me. So, so these things are basically, I think of myself as creating containers for people, this like t- temples that are, are flexible temple. And at one point I even had like Zendo without walls as a, as a thing on the website. Um, so yeah, essentially flexible practice containers. Like almost you could say, like that's why we're calling the anti-racism, like an intensive, right? Certain, certain intensive of study, kind of like going off on a practice period, but from your home now, it really makes sense given we're all home, but I like that. You know, and actually let's talk about that a little bit. Like you have this upcoming program called the the Dharma of being anti-racist, um, and that's the application. I think that's is till like mid-April or, or early April or something like that. So yeah, if people 17th. are interested, the seventeenth, I think, yeah, go there now, people. Would, <laughs> right, um, but um, can you? sort of help us understand like where that came from and why you're doing that um it's you know not typically part of where we've been as buddhists in this convert culture right but but obviously something really essential if we're talking about liberation with a capital l right yeah um yeah, it actually started when I went to a Gen X teacher conference back in 2017. And that was when a lot of another publicized, tra- yeah, publicized uh, rising of a lot of sexual misconduct in, in oh. convert Buddhist centers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
one of our workshops was on restorative and it was it brought in um right use of power mm-hmm. and i loved it and I, I i really appreciate it and it got me thinking that um <clears throat> what is in buddhism is restorative i mean vastly we already know that about buddhism that's a healing practice and mm-hmm. so that's when i really just started to look at the four noble truths and given my um social work training which by the reason you know like i knew i wanted to be a therapist but my one my background to get into grad school was an activist and then mm-hmm. two i very much chose chose social work when i was looking at programs is because social work is very much based on understanding systems that mm-hmm. you know a person is not in isolation it's not just what's internal but it's all the things that that support or don't support them um so um i think i've always had the system structure so I, I've reframed the, the Four Noble Truths in a way that is much more point towards, one, um, identifying that already. So as a restorative model, we start out with saying there has been hurt and harm. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, would you read them? Because I don't have them in front of me. Maybe we started with sure. that. Sure. Want me to read them? Yes, please. Um, the first one is harm and harming happens in life. Uh, number two. Understanding what brings about the causes and conditions for this harming, harmful experience or situation. And number three, where is it possible to have agency in the midst of harm or difficulty? Number four, the eightfold path supports empowerment, which is really just such an amazing rewriting of them. Yeah. And so for me, again, so we start out with the first as clearly it's. It, ha- it has happened or is here. Um, mm-hmm. And I think also, you know, given that I've worked with a lot of people of that trauma, so really being able to clearly identify suffering is key, right? Or, or the way the symptoms of suffering. And so then the second on the surface doesn't sound any different than, than the traditional. So we do focus much more on the conditions. And for me, and that's because it gives more, much more sense of the structure. And in particular, uh, for me, the key of it is that when I realize that um, the dukkha is the suffering or the disease or the way that I've been taught to deal with pain and suffering or events that are of dukkha is learnt, mm-hmm. either from my family or my culture or systems of oppression, you know, enable or promote or collude. How does it help us to collude or, or force us to? Um, so then that gives me much more sense that if I, um, it's something that was taught to me, then I can relearn, unlearn it or relearn it. And that's to me, then naturally leads into that, oh, so if this is something that was learned, then I have agency. Where do I have agency to unlearn and relearn? So we're in the midst of, you know, like the way Charlotte Jokoback would put it, you know, there's true suffering and false suffering. So which part of the false suffering can I do something about? And that's where the agency and and to me also the 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 where healing has happened say around racism is when I realized that you know I remember the first time you know I lived over my adoptive parents were in the State Department so I lived overseas and I lived in the whole system of American 
you know, embassy culture where we're identify as American. I had diplomatic passports, you know, I, and in those days, like at airports, we went through a separate line. So I was like always treated like very American in a, in a lauded way. Then, you know, they retired and we went to North Dakota and it's also the eighties, right. Where all the anti-Asian stuff was happening. So then, you know, people would like, I would be going, riding my bike down the street and people were going, chink, go home. And I, at first, I remember I literally would look around me and say, who are you talking to? Well, one, I'm Vietnamese. I'm not Chinese. So who are you talking to? Right. And then I myself, given that I was adopted by people in the state department, you know, my father was the same level as an ambassador. Um, was like, I'm American. Who, who are you talking to? Right. And so when I could then, but, but when I went to college, I could really understand that it's because of the structure of racism that what felt really personal is part of how people are taught to perceive me, no matter how I perceive myself, because of the structure of racism, people perceive me like this. Right. And so it take it, it, it's to see how structure work. I think the, the misunderstanding or the where the shadow of convert practice is that we, it's so much like me, 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 right? It's my experience. It's my point of view. It's what, and why that's not untrue, it, the, when we can bring in that how we come about and how others view us um, is system-based, then the healing comes in going, oh, it's not so personal. It feels mm-hmm. really personal. By that, I don't mean the the impact isn't personal. Like I, I've been beat up, and you know, so so it's not that the impact isn't. But and when I can see that, oh, because of the way you learn to behave this way as say a white person that's acting in a racist manner, then also you can unlearn and relearn that. And so the possibility of all of us having a sense of agency to be able to examine our beliefs and how we interact from those beliefs in a way that's much more inclusive and holistic is much more evident when we're clear that, again, the structuralness of hurt, uh, the structures that create harm and separation and harm is is where we need to pay attention and, and also gives us much more sense of policy change are, are more you know, again, not that personal change isn't important, but also systems also need to change to reflect that. The sense of wholeness we know is already here and present. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Reverend Leon Shutt encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for Access to Zen at accesstozen.org. And I'll include a link to the Zen Center in the show notes, as well as a link to her upcoming program, The Dharma of Being Anti-Racist. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are invited to try a free month of training with the online Sangha. To access your free month, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I am your host, 
Ian Whitemore, and I hope you'll join me again next week. <laughs>